My name is Arvash. I'm a senior fellow at Bruegel, and I contributed to organizing this, this conference, and I will chair the second session. I just would like to welcome all of you uh, and introduce our, our first speaker, uh, Martin Sekal, if I learned how to pronounce your name correctly, who is the Deputy Director General at DG Santa of the, of the European Commission uh, since 2014, but he has been the Deputy Director General since 2011. And I think I don't have to emphasize the importance of health issues uh, on which this event will, will uh, concentrate. Um, Luckily, the, the Commission, along with the, with the OECD and the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies, now regularly prepare reports uh, about health in, in the EU. Uh, Mr. Sekel will, will introduce uh, how these reports are organized and, and some of the key findings of the recent uh, publications. But certainly we want to go beyond that, and we also invited many people from many different institutions uh, to comment and give their perspective. So without any further ado, let me invite uh, Mr. Sekal to give an initial presentation, and then we will have two panel discussions. Thank you. Thank you. I understand the presentation is loaded, so I just need to, okay. So, um, good morning. Um, first of all, I must apologize. My voice is not at its very best, so I hope it will last for the entire presentation. So, uh, apologies um, um, for that. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the opportunity to explain also um, our work in this area and, and why it's so important. And let me start by saying that I think we all recognize that um, we are at a very crucial moment when it comes to health in Europe. Um, <clears throat> of course, um, there's still a lot of positive in our in our um, in our um, health approach to health, we still have some of the strongest health systems anywhere in the world. Uh, if we look at some of the <clears throat> key indicators, I can just mention one. Of course, uh, uh, something everyone mentions: life expectancy. We have one of the highest in the world. But I think it's very important also to to really dig beneath the headline figures and really try to have a much deeper understanding of what's going on, because we know there are significant shifts and changes happening, some for better, some for worse. Um, just to give an example on the life expectancy, although it's very high, as I said, we see that the increase in expect life expectancy is slowing down, and in some cases even reversing, um, at least in some countries. Um, and this leads to a growing concern over whether we can, in the future, sustain the quality of public health and healthcare that we have become accustomed to and that our citizens rightly expect. We also face a number of challenges, um, big challenges, climate change, an aging population, uh, but also um, constant and, and new health threats, um, antimicrobial resistance, uh, very underestimated, the disruptive effect that this will cause. Um, even the digital revolution, of course, uh, very exciting, lots of potential. But if we're not careful, a digital divide could end up accentuating the health divide. And um, it would be the ultimate paradox <clears throat> if digital technology, which is supposed to make location less important, ends up making it more important. So uh, that is a risk. <clears throat> we also have <clears throat> growing polarization, um, growing differences, um, growing gaps that also um, 
pr present our, our policies with a lot of challenges. <clears throat> so it's clear, uh, I think one thing everybody agrees on is that business as usual is not an option. Um, and we, we cannot afford inaction in health. We have to take decisions, uh, hopefully the, the, the good decisions. And this brings me to the issue of evidence. You cannot take good policy decisions without the best possible uh, and available evidence. And this we see, we see as one of our main responsibilities in the European Commission. Of course, the delivery of healthcare is the responsibility of the member states and the regions, and that is for a very good reason. Uh, but um, that needs to be supported. We have a role in the European Commission to support our member states, to help them take the best decisions uh, that, of course, are in, in, in line with their resources and their circumstances. <clears throat> so this is where this state of health comes in, because the state of health was always designed to be primarily aimed at decision makers. There's a lot of evidence out there, of very good quality, lots of you know, work and studies and, and publications, but um, speaking also uh, as a former national civil servant, um, I know how important it is to have the evidence presented to you in a very concise and clear way that really underlines the decisions that you will need to take or recommend. Um, and that is something which is not always easy to do when you're faced with hundreds of pages of academic, high quality, but very, let's say, complex analysis that needs to be boiled down to the essential messages. And this is why um, <clears throat> we're very grateful for the cooperation from our colleagues in the OECD and the European Observatory, who will be here today as well, <clears throat> and their collaboration is extremely useful. So, <clears throat> we, we uh, see the state of health as an infrastructure um, at the service of policymakers and policy influences. And <clears throat> indeed, this was one of the main areas of work um, in the <clears throat> past five years. It's a legacy we intend to continue uh, to build upon. So I will start by, I think it's, yeah. <clears throat> first of all, to briefly introduce the cycle and outline the main conclusions from our companion report <coughs> um, before uh, we go a bit deeper into the analytical work um, on the state of health and also the opportunities provided by digital tools, which I understand will be the subject of two panel discussions this morning. So what is the state of health um, in the EU? Um, the state of, uh, objective of the state of health uh, in the EU um, sorry, here, is, um, <clears throat> is to support member states by strengthening the evidence we have, um, first of all, on health systems in Europe. Um, and um, our aim is to build an infrastructure, as I said, to present health system information, expertise, and very importantly, best practice. It's not enough to just point out the situation, but also to point out how these situations could be addressed. Um, the European Union is, or should be, a community of practice. We are all facing the same issues, um, even if we all have different means, um, but that there's a lot that can be done for member states um, to learn from each other, and this is one of the main aims. I'll say something about that later. <clears throat> so, as I said, um, our partners in this endeavor um, and I understand uh, <coughs> we'll have colleagues here, um, Dr. Joseph Figueras from the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies, and also Dr. Guillaume Dede from the OECD, Health Systems Analyst. Um, 
And indeed, um, I can say from the outset that this initiative would not have been at all possible without their help. I mean, the expertise they have brought uh, into this work uh, has been absolutely indispensable. So um, I would ask you very much to see this as a very uh, much a joint endeavor between our three institutions. And we have, uh, I think, very complementary strengths. And the role of the Commission, the OECD, and the Observatory, um, I believe, are very complementary. <coughs> Um, and also, uh, another thing to point out is that we, we wanted to uh, find the right balance in this exercise between having, of course, something which would be applied to all member states, but would re also respect the specificity of member states. You cannot just propose one-size-fits-all approaches in health. It will not work. Our member states are very different uh, in many respects, but they all face very similar challenges, and they all have access to uh, the same toolkit. Um, in terms of, of, of financial programs, in terms of other policy measures. And so it's very important also to find the right balance between addressing all the member states together, but also um, uh, recognizing that they need also some country-specific um, advice and analysis. So, <coughs> um, you may have seen this before, but I'll, I'll go through it again. Um, very briefly. Um, this is a biannual exercise, so it, um, each cycle takes two years. Um, um, first of all, um, it's, uh, it starts with the Health at a Glance Europe in, in year one, which uh, um, kind of um, this presents this is a horizontal assessment of health systems performance. Um, but then every other year, so in, in year two, we produce um, uh, a number of uh, country health profiles, so these are individual profiles, you may have seen some of them um, outside, um, and, and you're very welcome to have a look at those, of course. Um, in addition, so these are country-specific, so per country, it's a very similar format, but they're very um, tailor-made to the situation in each specific country. And also, in parallel with that, we have <coughs> what we call a companion report, which is a commission's uh, input into the process. Um, which uh, identifies uh, some of the biggest trends. Of course, we do not aim to be exhaustive um, in, each, um, in each cycle. This is not about uh, producing the encyclopedia of health. But uh, every, every two years, we identify a number of topics linked, of course, to the Commission's policy agenda and, and try to put the spotlight on those because we see that there are maybe opportunities or, or, or issues that need to be brought to the attention in a special way. <coughs> Um, we also have the possibility, but this is, of course, completely voluntary, um, to have <clears throat> what we call voluntary exchanges with the member states. Um, and a number of member states have taken up this opportunity, so we can, uh, in the member state itself, so these happen in the member state, <coughs> um, actually um, dig deeper into a particular issue, which the member state itself will choose. And again here, the, the assistance and the, and, the, and the role played by the OECD and the observatory is absolutely invaluable. Um, and in fact, we've had a good number of these exchanges already. So, um, of course, the, the starting point for our work is the Commission's uh, policy objectives in the area of health systems, which is basically that we aim to ensure that we can achieve effective, accessible, and resilient health systems in the EU. We, we base all our work in, on health systems on these three principles. 
Uh, and this is, in fact, one of the main lessons learned also from the aftermath of the financial crisis, uh, that our health systems were often um, under severe pressure and, 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 and often failed in, 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 these, three, uh, in these three dimensions. Um, so we, we uh, base all our analysis on these three aspects, which we believe characterize or should characterize um, a good health system, uh, a robust health system. Uh, it should be effective, deliver what it's supposed to deliver, of course, uh, and it's not just delivering treatment. Health systems should deliver much more than just treatment, of course. Um, they should be accessible. Um, it is um, a distinguishing feature of European health policy that we do not just aim to offer the best possible health care, but the best possible health care for all. This is, I think, a distinguishing feature of, of our approach in Europe. And one thing we learned particularly from the crisis was that our health systems need to be resilient. They need to be able to adapt to shocks uh, which can be uh, predictable or unpredictable. Um, and we, we, we had a number of significant failings in the past, um, especially on this dimension, that our health systems were too rigid to be able to, to adapt to, to changes. So let's move on quickly to, to some of the <coughs> um, <coughs> key findings. Um, I'll just highlight the Commission's companion report, which draws a number of conclusions. But let's go straight to some of the <coughs> big uh, uh, trends. Um, and I think it's the next slide. So the five big trends, I mean, there are, of course, many, but these are five we wanted to highlight in particular. Five big trends that are happening and that are indeed transforming our health systems. The first... <coughs> challenge uh, we, are, we, we, we take note of is the issue of vaccine hesitancy. Um, some of you might be surprised why we highlight this so much. Uh, it is indeed one of the biggest threats health systems face. If you look at the increase in life expectancy over the past 50, 75 years, much of it, much of it can be ascribed to two things, sanitation and vaccination. That that accounts for the bulk of the massive increase in life expectancy that, uh, that we have managed to achieve, not just in Europe, but globally. Um, and this is often underestimated. You know, people um, underestimate the contribution that a vaccination makes and just how much of an uh, important um, pillar it is. It is <laughs> at risk. We face in some countries, not in all, but in some countries, plummeting <coughs> vaccination rates. <coughs> we need, um, it's very often been uh, ignored, even among health professionals uh, themselves, uh, not sufficiently promoting what they know um, is the perhaps one of the most effective public health tools where, of course, vaccines are available and exist. <coughs> we also need to ensure that we continue to improve health literacy. It's shocking for all the sophistication in our societies, the degree of health illiteracy there is. Um, and this is uh, something which, of course, um, will create problems not just in this area. Um, there is even, of course, um, uh, disinformation, uh, some of it may be uh, resulting from naivety, but some of it also deliberate. Um, and, of course, that is finding fertile ground because there is a lot of lack of knowledge about this topic. <coughs> In a way, of course, vaccination has become a victim of its own success. Uh, the problem is when vaccination works, it works so well, the diseases 
it prevents disappear. And so you don't see the risk anymore. Of course, uh, uh, things are very different in other parts of the world. Um, infectious diseases, I mean, sometimes there is the mistaken belief that now it's all about non-communicable diseases. Infectious diseases, uh, some people think, are a thing of the past. Well, just turn on the news this morning and see what the biggest uh, news item is. It's the uh, new uh, coronavirus in Wuhan, which is already, you know, uh, dominating the headlines. Infectious have never gone away, and they will never go away. So we have to continue to ensure uh, that uh, this old enemy, uh, which can take various forms, um, we are, we are um, uh, protecting our, ourselves against. And, and vaccination, <coughs> where available, uh, is one of the <coughs> most important tools we have. Um, our evidence, the evidence we have collected, suggests there is a lot of scope to improve health literacy and also to counter disinformation. And one of the key uh, facts which emerged is that the best way to do this is through the health workforce. Um, health professionals remain, in, in, in all countries, the most trusted source of information about health. And therefore, I think one of the biggest failures we have had is sometimes disengagement of health professionals themselves. Um, if I can just take one indicator, we know that there are significant numbers of health professionals who are themselves not vaccinated. Now, this is, this is very worrying. And, and sends a very dangerous message, even if it's not always an intended message. So, so this is something, obviously, <coughs> we would want to prioritize, and we are recommending member states to prioritize. Second conclusion, digital transformation. <coughs> Another big thing which is happening. This is, um, and, and the key word here is transformation. A lot of people think the key word is digital. The key word here is transformation, because digitalization of health is not about doing digitally what you would normally do in a more traditional way. I mean, um, I mean, if you talk to health professionals, for example, one of the most common complaints from doctors and nurses is that they say they are being reduced to data entry operators, which is true in many respects. Um, when we go to our doctor and the clinic, they're busy entering a lot of details about, about us and uh, that takes away precious time from the communication with the patient. Uh, but that's not the aim of digital. Digital is about transforming. It's about, for example, moving away from the hospital-based model to a patient-centered model, having better follow-up, being able to monitor patients independently of location and give them the best possible advice in real time, if possible. It's about supporting professionals and their work, how you can make use of artificial intelligence and big data approaches to really uh, provide support for professionals. Um, this is a, a radical transformation, <clears throat> or should be a radical transformation. Um, and also when it comes to, um, in the issue of health promotion and disease prevention, there is sometimes the mistaken belief that digital is just about hospitals, about treatment. Um, if you look at um, uh, prevention and primary care and, and uh, also um, how um, the integration of care, all this can be greatly transformed and facilitated by digital technologies. Now, uh, as I said, however, we should not forget the key element here is transformation. This is not about just spending money on the latest technology or the latest gadgets. Without a complete different approach, 
a lot of this will be very wasteful expenditure. Um, we know from past examples like imaging um, that if you do not have very good criteria for deciding who needs to be scanned and who doesn't, you will have a lot of overexpenditure and waste of money. And the same could happen on an even larger scale um, in, in digital technologies. <coughs> Another element to point out is that a lot of the innovation in digital technologies is happening outside the traditional healthcare arena. A lot of the big players introducing these technologies are themselves not healthcare companies in the traditional sense. So you have the big uh, tech giants, uh, IT giants, they come from other angles. And often they are not European companies. So also a big challenge for Europe will be how to ensure that European values and European principles that underpin our health systems are not thrown overboard because we are just importing technology without thinking how the technology is going to fit into our systems. Uh, and, and that is something obviously which is <coughs> of concern. Now, I don't want to be negative about this at all. In fact, I'm very optimistic about these technologies. I mean, <coughs> they have certainly potential to, to uh, change things we have been talking about for a long time. Uh, the patient-centered approach, which we have all been referring to for years and years, um, this has always proven to be difficult because ultimately, you know, um, a lot of the treatment options we have today are in hospitals. Um, but if you consider digital solutions like apps, wearable technologies, also the possibility to interact with the patient, for the patient to be able to contribute his or her own observations, for example, uh, digital technology greatly facilitates, or could greatly facilitate this. Um, it's not possible to do this in the traditional approach. Um, <clears throat> so, it's really, we have a golden opportunity finally to realize what we've been saying, that we need to um, raise awareness and empower citizens. <clears throat> there are, of course, a lot of barriers. Um, I'll just mention a few. Interoperability, privacy concerns, reimbursement criteria, um, it's, not, it's not straightforward. You have a lot of different uh, approaches in countries. Um, it, Europe is a very fragmented place and this does not make it, of course, um, easy or attractive for this technology to take root. Um, in particular, for example, we need to have a good governance framework for the secondary use of data. Um, we should also um, uh, um, uh, ensure, this is another conclusion, we should really emphasize digital health literacy. Third conclusion, I'll try to go faster because I understand the time is, but there's quite a lot to say here. So, first thing is um, um, we still have gaps in, uh, uh, in healthcare um, accessibility. So, um, the report mentions some examples uh, the situation of irregular residents, um, problems in rural areas. We are now hearing the term medical deserts uh, increasingly. Um, this is uh, an issue, of course, uh, which will lead, if, if not tackled, to uh, major gaps um, also in, in, in the quality of, and in, in the outcomes and, and the quality of healthcare available and would have a lot of other social consequences as well. Um, <clears throat> a fourth conclusion was about skill mix innovations, including the issue of task shifting. Uh, the role of the professions is changing. Um, often um, we have problems of staff shortages, but we should not see uh, task shifting as just a quick fix for staff shortages. 
skill shifting should take into account the, the, the changing nature of the professions, the training that professionals are given. For example, I mentioned vaccination er earlier. In some countries, there have been very good results by, for example, um, empowering and allowing nurses and pharmacists to vaccinate. If, 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 if through that you can improve the, the, the outreach, um, that is something to be considered. There is no reason why not if, if, if the right, uh, the right uh, training is, is in place, as it often is. <clears throat> so we have, we have a number of examples, positive examples of task shifting uh, among health workers um, uh, across the EU. And this is something, obviously, which we will continue to, to monitor and, 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 and uh, there are many best practices in this area. However, any change in roles often creates challenges to traditional hierarchies and that it does lead to tension. Um, and therefore, uh, any such shift needs to be accompanied by adequate education, training, active involvement of the organizations involved. And I repeat, it should not be uh, seen or presented or driven by, for example, things like cost-cutting uh, um, uh, imperatives. I mean, this, this is, should be a means to improve systems and not just to cope with, with, with emergencies. The final and fifth finding is an issue, of course, which will be very high on the Commission's agenda as well over the next few years, the issue of how we can ensure that in the face of promising but often very expensive innovative technology, European patients can have, continue to have or can have access to affordable, innovative and sustainable medicines. And all these three terms are very important. There's no point in having uh, breakthrough treatments if only a few people can afford them, and or if those treatments end up crippling health systems and cause a lot of other uh, negative impacts. This is a big challenge. Uh, Europe is not uh, a unified place in this, in this respect. We have growing concerns from countries, small member states, poorer member states, uh, that do not have access to some of the medicines. Sometimes patients have to wait up to a decade to get access to life-saving treatments. So, what's next? So, these are the key findings. I mean, of course, it's not exhaustive, but these are the key findings in the, in the, in the, in the report. Uh, we aim to follow this up with voluntary exchanges with the health ministries, of course, uh, uh, purely voluntary, but uh, some have already expressed interest. But most important from our side, we will make sure to feed all this evidence into various EU policy processes. Um, as I mentioned, the issue of access to medicines, but also digital technologies, uh, um, these are all very high on the Commission's agenda. And also, we have already started work on the third cycle, which will cover the period 2020-2022, um, where we'll, of course, uh, continue to follow some of these issues and also maybe dig deeper into some aspects. So, if you would like to um, obtain any further information, we have uh, uh, more detailed information on our website. Uh, you can also uh, write to us, um, and this is again um, uh, something which is uh, an ongoing process, so you could also see uh, from the previous report as well uh, evolution in certain aspects, and we hope also to maybe to get certainly your ideas and feedback on how we can uh, improve this product, and uh, as we're already working on the third cycle, uh, maybe uh, make some further improvements. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Seiko, for this very nice and comprehensive and informative overview of the state of health 
cycle in the EU and the five key areas that the recent companion report has emphasized. Uh, I would just like to introduce briefly Caroline Kostongs, who very kindly agreed to chair the, the next session. Uh, Caroline is the director of EuroHealthNet, which is the European Partnership for Improving Health, Equity and Wellbeing. And she has been working on health-related issues for, for many, many years now on EU health policies, health inequalities, regional development, sustainable de uh, development, health promotion, and many, many others. So let me pass the floor to you immediately. Thank you very much for accepting to chair this session. Thanks a lot, uh, Sult. Thank you. And can I please ask all of the panelists to uh, come to the floor here and take a seat? Thanks for the nice introduction. Um, for those of you who do not know EuroHealthNet, we are indeed a partnership of mainly national public health institutes and regional health authorities. And uh, we were actually very happy to support the Commission and the OECD and Observatory in uh, helping to disseminate the evidence in various countries. So only last week uh, we were in Italy, in Bari, where we uh, helped the ministry and the, the Puglian region to uh, present on the findings and on the inequalities in Italy and on the high out-of-pocket payments and uh, they really took it up and um, it's important to, to see that how member states can work with this evidence and we will be further supporting events in Sweden and in Finland and in Greece and I heard there are other events um, uh, to further disseminate and work with the outcomes. Um, so the, the purpose of this session is to further get an idea of the state of health in the EU and uh, I'm delighted to have uh, all the panelists here and we would like to uh, further look a bit more in detail in the country profiles because there has been a lot of work by the OECD and observatory um, to look at the situation in every country and did also a cross-country analysis so I would like to give the floor already to two uh, colleagues. Um, the first uh, is Guillaume Dede. He's a policy analyst and health economist of the OECD. And uh, together with uh, Josef Igueras, director of the European Observatory uh, on Health Systems and Policies. And I would like to, uh, to ask you to further uh, elaborate on the presentation of Martin by giving the, the facts and figures. Guillaume, would you want to start? And there is Thank also you. a PowerPoint presentation that I assume is uh, somewhere. <laughs> Would it be possible also to get the, the point? Help. So. So. Um, yeah, I, I know for your presentation you need uh, some of the nice figures, but maybe you can already start. Well, we, we can just give it a start yes. very quickly, the idea. Uh, first of all, good morning everyone and, and thanks very much uh, for this invitation. It's, it's really a great pleasure for us to share back a bit of our experience and find the main findings of this, uh, this very interesting policy process and, and collaboration across the three organizations. Um, the idea of just just to to give you with the main findings of the of the of the country profiles uh, just a, a brief overview but of course 
uh, what we what we advise you is to check also each of them, and including the companion report, because the, they, they all include very a quite a thorough analysis of the situation in the countries, comparisons, and uh, and also uh, you know some general thoughts about the directions taken and the and the approaches of, of the situation. So basically, all the country profiles are uh, structured and organized around the same. Uh, you know, format. Uh, basically, we start always by um, informing a bit of, of the on the situation of the health of the population. So we use the main usual indicators, be it the, mainly the life expectancy at birth, but also across uh, income groups, across uh, social groups, across uh, gender. But also we we check on uh, on things like. Um, the self-perceived and self-assessed health, the healthy aging, or the the, the 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 perception of health through through age and so on. Then the second chapter, I mean, which is the third in the order, but it's the second one uh, uh, that we use is the is the is the to to report back a bit on risk factors of the population. What are the main issues? And so we also have. Uh, the major ways of displaying it and indicators. The first chapter is uh, an analysis of the health system in the country and a description of its functioning and the main reforms that have been presented and adopted in, uh, in recent years. And the fifth chapter is divided in three subsections which address uh, three pillars of the, of the, uh, the performance of, of a health system. First, it's the, the, um, the description of the general uh, effectiveness. The second one is the accessibility, so um, be it in terms of physical accessibility but also financial accessibility and all the other aspects. And the final one is the, um, the resilience of, uh, of the health system. So uh, it's just saying like how is the health system and the, and, and, um, the, the, the health system able uh, to cope with uh, sudden changes and, and modifications and so on. So that's the, the structure of the of the country profiles and all this country uh, all the all the country profiles are built around the same the same scheme, meaning that you can easily find in any of the profiles and information that you would need or be interested in uh, in finding across uh, across countries. So if I well, I think I will go without presentation basically. So that's fine. So um, just basically the the first element I wanted to to describe, and and then I will hand over to to Joseph, who will, who will also tell you a bit more on how health system managed to handle the challenges. Is just to describe the first two elements, which were uh, the 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 health of the population, our main findings on this, and the um, the risk factors. So I will I will start with the health of the population. Basically, what and as already mentioned by Mr. Sagel, uh, we enjoy and we have the chance to enjoy in Europe very high levels of life expectancy. Uh, what we report is the, the latest features for, uh, data from 2017, which says that basically the, life, the average life expectancy in Europe is 81 years. Uh, it's 90.9, 80.9, so 81, let's say. So it's, it's very high. The thing is that we have also to go a bit beyond this, uh, these broad numbers, because basically the situation is much more, I would say, we have to qualify a bit uh, this statement. The first thing is that the good news is that it has increased over years. I mean, since 2000, we gained a roughly four years of life expectancy, which is really a lot, and which was already, we started from a quite, quite high level, so we, we managed to, to keep a, an interesting uh, uh, growth on that front. This has to be also qualified, because as, as, as stated already, in recent years, things have started to stall. Uh, and uh, in some countries, and we still have to see if this is just, you know, a, 
uh, something like a, like a movement that they will will re recover later on, or if it's something more uh, sustainable. And uh, this only time will tell us. And we have started to investigate also in the countries where we we have seen this uh, this uh, this you know um, decrease in the growth, even uh, dec full decrease of the of the life expectancy. What were the reasons? And maybe we can discuss that later during the. The, the, the discussion. The other thing is to see, to check beyond the, these broad numbers, uh, what are the nuances, the differences across uh, groups. So we know that there are important gaps across gender, important gaps across income groups and across uh, ethnic, social ethnic group. Uh, we have also in Europe some marginalized communities facing very much lower uh, rates of life expectancy uh, um, than, uh, than the average. So this has to be also checked and across countries, obviously, the life expectancy is much higher in Western Europe than it is in the states that most recently joined uh, the European Union. So. We have to go a bit beyond these numbers. If you just check, for instance, the, the difference between in, in, uh, in, in life expectancy uh, across, um, across educational group, you have roughly seven years uh, among male, uh, four years among women. And, uh, and these rates are also very, very different if you check Eastern European countries and Western European countries with usually twice the, 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 the gap you, you see in Western Europe. So that's, that's the, first, uh, the first point. Uh, life expectancy has grown up. Life expectancy is high, but there are important nuances across, uh, across groups. Also, the, the, the second point, if we go now on risk factors, uh, what we know is that roughly 30% of uh, death in Europe uh, can be attributed to behavioral risk factors, which is extremely high. I'm sorry. Oh, great, we have the presentation back, so I move on. So now we catch up directly here, and it's a good thing for in, in terms of uh, time. Um, so what we know is that, yeah, as I was mentioning, 40% of deaths in Europe uh, can be attributed to, to behavioral risk factors. Uh, the most important one being, you know, dietary issues, uh, smoking, alcohol consumption, and, uh, you know, um, sedentarity. So that's, that's also a, a very important element because these are things on which we can have actions on. We can we can have influence on, and uh, and that's uh, that's uh, that's one of the elements. So if we go also once again a bit further uh, into the, the details, what we see is that if we check first uh, the, the the context in in the young, um, that's rather going better than it used to be, uh, in the sense that uh, smoking among adolescents uh, has decreased. Uh, similarly, um, you know, an LC. Uh, uh, alcohol consumption and, and you know excessive alcohol consumption has also tend tend to to decrease over over time. But this also same thing we have we have also to, to dig a bit further. There are some countries that are extremely well performing and others for which we see uh, uh, less good uh, results. And and not in that case in the in the in, in the risky behavior among young there is less of this divide between West and East of Europe because as you can see for instance the very high level the highest level of binge drinking behavior uh, among adolescents is in, is in Denmark, which uh, I've lived in Denmark for years, so I, I, it's something I've seen firsthand, but that's something that you could not necessarily, would not have expected like empirically uh, as, a, as, a, as a first thought. So if we move on to adults, also similarly, alcohol consumption is an extremely, uh, is a very, very important uh, issue, a public health problem. What we know is that roughly today, on average, um, Europeans consume 10 liters of alcohol per capita, which is quite high. Same thing, we have also uh, important nuances and variations across uh, across countries with uh, here a more clear gradient uh, west-east, but 
same thing, we also have to analyze uh, in a country like France, which has at 11 uh, liters per year roughly, uh, you have also uh, an important uh, uh, difference across regions and so on. So things also have to be um, checked and, and looked uh, uh, a bit more in details to, to have a better picture of things. And similarly, you have uh, also um, uh, binge drinking, so you know excessive uh, alcohol consumption over a short period uh, remains an important issue, more particularly uh, among men uh, in Europe, uh, as you can see on the on the on the small graph on the right. Uh, here, uh, so another big issue, as you know, and that has not been uh, progressing very well in recent years, is the the problem of obesity and uh, and overweight. So we are not at the level, uh, and hopefully we will never reach the levels of uh, that are across the ocean, but uh, that we see in the U.S. But still, we what we see is that first the the level of obesity and the obesity rates and overweight and obesity rates have increased in uh, almost all countries uh, in Europe, be, be it among adolescents or adults. So same thing. It's uh, it's 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 a growing issue, and that's something that. Uh, our societies will have to deal more with, with all the implication it has in terms of, you know, metabolic diseases and cardiovascular issues. So that's also something that is is growing up, is already present because we have roughly 15% of the European population today that is uh, obese and, and I mean measured and considered as obese, and uh, and this this has increased uh, over time. And also we see that this this the upcoming problem because all the young that are all, uh, today being overweight and obese will become adults in the years to come and that will also add up to this uh, to this current situation so a very uh, quite worrisome also uh, issue here with also similarly variation across countries with it's a much more bigger problem right now uh, in uh, in southern europe than it is in northern, northern europe but same thing the trends are here for northern countries and and the situation will worsen in recent time so now i hand over to to joseph who will tell you about what can a health system do facing these challenges thanks very much <clears throat> Yes, what can the health systems do? I mean, a, a good part of this, uh, first, well, first of all, it's, it's indeed a pleasure. And Martin, the collaboration with you, Martin Seikel, the, the Commission, the OECD Observatory taught us lots of things. Among others, to be sharp and short, communicate well. And a lot of what I'd like uh, to do now is just show some figures, but hopefully to trigger for you to actually look at the profiles and in particular the companion report. A lot of the emphasis was how do you summarize the complexity in 15 pages, which need to blame Martin and his colleagues? It's some of the biggest pain we have had, right, at the OECD and the observatory, because, you know, we're specialized in writing long reports and deep analysis, but they were very extremely tough with us, no more than 15 pages. It has to be said, though, that when we asked them for comments on our template of five pages, we got around 50 pages comments, so of things we needed to add. But <laughs> then both the Commission, the OECD, and the observatory were very, very rigorous and manage 15 pages. And that's painful because there's so much nuance that you want to put in there. But I think, and that's where, as Martin said earlier, I'm very, very keen, we're very, very keen for you to shout back at us and say, you missed that, you missed the other, this is very important, even within these 15 pages. So what went in the 15 pages is give you a flavor of what's going on. And particularly, I'd like to highlight what Martin was saying, uh, get voluntary changes. Get member states thinking, what does it mean for me? And these figures that Guillaume was showing and the ones I'm going to show you 
trigger a lot. I don't know what they mean in some instances. Some, some instances mean lots of things and nothing, but certainly they make you think. They, they realize that there is a problem somewhere, somehow, that you need to look at. So it's been very useful in terms of communication. And later on we'll have a debate, and I should go move quickly, Caroline, I know. We need to talk about issues of transformation and change. And this is exactly what the Commission, if I may, and echoing what you said, Martin, wanted with this exercise. Put evidence that triggers change, that makes member states think about what they need to change, how they need to change, and look around the region. Is this famous natural experiment we have in Europe. And the key role of the Commission, with the support of some of us, is actually to use that evidence to, to trigger, to, to produce change, hopefully in the right directions. So we have three aspects. Again, I can show you, if you are my psychiatrist, I would tell you the pain on saying why effectiveness, access, and resilience. Why these three dimensions? So we went backwards and forwards with many of these dimensions, and we thought we ended up agreeing with the Commission's main policy that these are the best dimensions to try to communicate, to explain what happens with the impact of health systems in the region. So how do the health systems address these challenges that Guillem has put on the table? And as I said, I will be brief. I'll know you should never trust a speaker when they say wants to be brief because they never end up being brief. And uses a lot of time talking about wanting to be brief, right? <laughs> okay. This is, this is a controversial one as well, but a lot of fun, very interesting. This is avoidable mortality, either because of treatable or preventable. And then there's lots of debates about how we got that to that. I mean, the ECD, the matrix, Aldir uh, Kismuri's matrix, uh, the Eurostat, of course, about whether we are measuring those, okay? My colleague Ian knows an awful lot about that. So we can debate that if you want. But we can say, I love the figures around a million because people remember those. We didn't make it up, though. Eh? More than 1.1 million premature deaths in the EU could be avoided through better prevention and healthcare. So if the health systems were more effective, if we were better in prevention, we could be saving this amount of lives. That's the number. That's a number that is very attractive. Maybe it's a million and a half, maybe it's two, maybe it's half. But there's a large amount of cases that we could do far, far better. And that's what matters. Second, the variations are enormous. Where the other day, actually, the first presentation in Parliament of uh, Commissioner Kiriakidis, I had the opportunity to be in the same platform with her. She was excellent bringing up the issue of cancer, as many others, and showing we were there with the U40, the, the parliamentarians under 40, which I think is ageism, by the way. Some of us were above 40. So, um, no, this is a joke. But we're talking about the differences between uh, this, this data is on cancer and uh, the differences in survival uh, between different parts of the region. The differences are enormous and shows not only resources, by the way, it shows effectiveness of prevention, it shows effectiveness of primary care and detecting, it shows good coordination between the levels of care and it shows good treatment. But it's not just about pharmaceuticals alone. Let's remind ourselves about that. Uh, Martin has very nicely uh, put this issue on the table, so I will not talk about vaccines. Uh, one other aspect of effectiveness, again, lots of debate about this measure, but I think it's telling us a very interesting story about primary care. This is avoidable um, uh, hospitalization huh? uh, in the face of effective primary care. So for a number of diseases, what we call tracer indicators, asthma and COPD, congestive heart failure and diabetes, you would expect very low, some, 
but very low hospital admissions, if primary care would work well, it would be effective. Many of them would not be decompensated, I would not need to be treated in hospital. So again, a cool number here, which I need to find. Over 3.5 million people in the EU were admitted to hospital for these four conditions that couldn't be treated in primary care. And it tells you a story about uh, Portugal, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Iceland, some of those perhaps being more effective. Of course, there are many issues there. You could say because there's not access to hospitals, because there are waiting lists. And there are lots of debates there. But it tells you there's something you need to look at and definitely tells you about the effectiveness of primary health care. Accessibility. Again, in this flash, I mean, the whole point here is for you to take some of the profiles that are outside, take them home, read them and start using them and call upon us, us meaning our group, we have large teams, to work with you, with your organization, with member states, to try to support with that evidence, looking at a particular issue on your own countries or in your own organizations. This is access, really summarizing the whole issue of access in two important figures, but it gives you the two dimensions of access. It's beautiful, of access, not access. This one is about perceived unmet need due to distance, due to the money barrier because of out of pocket, uh, or due to waiting lists, lack of supply. It shows the differences in that perception. Of course, careful, careful about perception, expectations, and so on. That's an area we can discuss later, if you wish. And you see the large differences in the percentages of population. It's around more than 10% of low-income people in some EU countries report unmet care needs. It's an important element. Actually, a good part of this exercise, as Martin Seiko already highlighted, is been to do more work on access and to look what are these barriers to access and how can we address those. And we can talk about the policies in a minute or later on in the debate. But clearly, it's not only about differences in average access, but also differences in uh, low and high income groups uh, in terms of accessing services. The one that now has been developed and is a very useful one is the, um, the catastrophic spending. I don't know how familiar you are with that one, it's the concept of financial protection. It's not only that a money barrier may not access health services, uh, not allow you to access health services, but if you decide to pay out of pocket, you can end up going into catastrophic expenditure using your available income at home to actually buy for services and denying other kinds of goods you can buy with this income, like food or many others. So it's a high percentage of disposable income and finishing. Uh, used uh, on, on that area. And of course, there's a clear correlation with uh, out-of-pocket payment. I don't have to remind you here that out-of-pocket payment is an issue that we need indeed to address and is still very high in member states. The last two figures, uh, again, are a bit convoluted perhaps. No, not convoluted actually. We managed to summarize an awful lot of, of, of evidence in these uh, basic figures. So let me just spend one minute on this one. Treatable mortality. Remember, I was talking about treatable mortality. So, mortality that should not happen in the, in the presence of effective healthcare services. It's in the vertical axis. So, you have Romania, Latvia with high levels of treatable mortality. Eh? And here, expenditure. This is a very summarized indicator about uh, efficiency. So, we are now in resilience. The ability to respond to challenges to, to challenges such, such as the crisis, aging, challenges in the reform of the health system. So that's one of the indicators of resilience as inefficiency. So 
given the amount you have, how much treatable mortality you can try to get. There is a clear correlation between resources and treatable mortality. However, and this tells you an awful lot of stuff, these countries with the same low level of treatable mortality spend huge differences in expenditure. Is that difference in efficiency? Probably we're not measuring very well the risk factors. But it says you as well that at certain levels of expenditure down here is extremely difficult to do anything really. So we need some critical mass of expenditure as well. We should not underestimate that. That one, I promise, Karen, I'm really sorry, but I'm still within the six minutes. Huh? So this is a very interesting, my six minutes, I'm within my six minutes, so I should not pay. <laughs> sorry about that. Okay, I'm practically there. I surrender any questions. I'll have, uh, I'll have those later. But, but, but these are really important. There's so much you can do with one of these figures. It took so long, our colleagues in the OECD, ourselves with the Commission, to try to summarize very complex issues in one figure. This one is beautiful. Look, nurses and doctors. Look at the huge differences. What does it tell you? Well, the guys in this quadrant, they have real problems about they're losing doctors, so there's all issues on nurses, there's issues on retention, there's issues on code of practice, and ethics between member states, by the way. So there's lots of issues about retention, it's about migration and so on. But also here tells you that there's a lot of unclarity about the vexed mix to provide services. Even if we're so unclear between doctors and nurses, imagine when you go through the other levels. And Martin Cycle has put already one of the trends, the, the skill mix, as one of the areas that we need to be working much more in depth. It's a shame, but I have to finish. Uh, the lessons are quite straightforward. Perhaps to highlight uh, around the resilience I already talked about, the efficient use of resources, skill mix planning, good governance is fundamental. Start with the bottom, as you can see. Access and particular vulnerable groups. We do pretty well in this region in terms of access in comparison. I think it's those vulnerable groups that fall out of the system in moments of crisis where we have to direct our, our best efforts. Most of the population has good coverage and access, but it's these vulnerable groups that cause some of the problems during crisis, uh, financial crisis or others. I'll leave it here, actually, because I think I already uh, exhausted my time. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, uh, Joseph and Guillaume, for this analysis. And I must congratulate you also that you managed to uh, cover so much still in a few uh, minutes and slides and pages. But still, uh, it is quite a lot. It's effectiveness, it's efficiency, it's resilience, it's access, it's literally everything. So. I was wondering, looking at the future also and aging, and you know, what are the elements that you would advise member states to really focus on? Is there, a, can you somehow prioritize in all of the findings that you uh, presented? From my perspective, it would be on prevention. We know that about 3% of national healthcare budgets go to prevention and, and, and promotion, so that would be my recommendation, but I haven't done the detailed analysis as you did. So I was wondering, could you elaborate on that? Okay, thanks for that question. Uh, it's not an easy one, I must say, but the thing is that we have to clarify the terms we're talking about. Um, what do we mean by prevention? Are we talking about prevention among people that are already in the health system or before? Uh, be, I mean, 
before that, people just like the, the general population and um, about behavioral interventions, like it's more the right term uh, to focus on here. The, the thing uh, I have in mind here is that the, we're expecting a lot from prevention. There has been a lot of um, you know, attention put and a lot of debates around what can prevention bring and with the idea that prevention would help to save costs. Uh, I don't think that's that straightforward uh, in the sense that uh, you have prevention, preventive interventions that are cost-saving, but you have others that are just cost-effective and you have some preventive interventions that are not cost-effective at all. So the real question is why are we expecting more from prevention than we expect from any other health intervention? Like we are, we are not putting the same pressure on, you know, when we assess treatments, medications, uh, in terms of cost saving. We just, we're already happy when, when it's slightly cost effective and we're, we, we even cope in some, in some, you know, therapeutic areas that we will focus on soon with the European Commission on cancer care, for instance. We're even happy with uh, medicines that are really not cost effective at all, that really cost a lot. They're not very little value for the money they bring and we still pay for them and we still buy them and when it comes to prevention we tend to sometimes have a, a, a vision that we say well if we have to spend for prevention that's not worthwhile so that's that's a bit uh, a weird discussion and, and the, the main issue I see here is that we're in, driven by short-termism in the sense that we say that okay what I want is to get some return right now and um, when I when I when I invest on a medicine, at least I see that I'm treating. I can I can have numbers. I can have figures. I, I I'm treating X number of patients. I'm gaining X years of life, maybe uh, in hopefully in good health. When it comes to prevention, it's much more uh, fuzzy. Uh, it's it's we're we we're, we have to invest in in the medium long term. So the the real question I, I'm having is that yeah, I think that prevention and mainly behavioral interventions, which are much beyond what health system can can provide. And I think in that sense, you know, investing more in education and also brings as much to health than what can health system can bring is 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 the real the real option and way forward. But that's more behavioral rather than than the preventive action. And the last thing I would like to to mention here um, is uh, when when we refer to prevention, uh, we we tend to. I'm sorry, I'm for, it slipped out of my mind immediately. It's <laughs> just like, but. Um, I, uh, it's very clear the I point think that's uh, that enough. you made. Yes, yes. And I, I would like to add that uh, from WHO data, it has been calculated that about 10% uh, of health inequalities can be uh, referred to uh, health systems. So health systems can cover about 10% of reduction of health inequalities, while other factors like living and working conditions and so on, uh, social protection that make up uh, of the other percentage. Uh, I mean, it's the usual suspects, Caroline, and, and, and then let me just... Give me 30 seconds. It's the usual suspects. I mean, we've seen, the, in addition to prevention, of course, I mean, the SDGs is, is a historic opportunity now. And you see that how the Commission and our new president um, has been very, very good at bringing the SDGs on the table. I think this is a historic opportunity. And it's, it sounds grand, but it is grand, actually, to, to make a difference because of what you just said. Within the health system is the usual suspects. It's effective primary care makes a huge difference. I mean, you, I mean if had with a few minutes, we can go and analyze some counties around that. The other usual suspect is, of course, integrated care. We still have an issue with financial protection and vulnerable groups, and there are substantial inequities, not as much as other regions in the world, but there's far more we can do there. And this is escaping even the Nordic countries that are particularly obsessive and trying very hard on, on inequalities. But you know what it all boils down? It's so boring and sad. It all boils down political will, transformation processes, communication, communication, and communication. 
and ownership. So if I now go through and think through with my colleagues no more than I do, what worked well, even in health promotion, has been always linked to particular individuals with a huge political will prepared to go there, transform the system. Of course, at certain levels of non-sustainability, of lack of resources, but that's what's made the difference, you know? How do you, uh, look look outside the region, take Turkey with all its problems, or Mexico when they manage installed coverage. What it was, individuals with names and surnames that managed. Actually, the former president of the commission now is not president anymore. We can say, used to say something, which it always sticks in my mind. He used to say, uh, politicians will know what to do. What we don't know is how to get reelected after we've done it. So. It is this element which explains a lot of that success. Of course, there are issues of governance, transparency. Uh, so a lot of the work, and I'll conclude here, is on sharing, and this is again another area we learned from our colleagues in Sante and DG Research, which are finally, I think, putting funding to transformation implementation, is how do we exchange good practice in transformation and change. And this new division that works very closely now with Sante, SRSS, the support division, is trying to do with Sante very closely how you support change in member states mm -hmm. with that information, with those skills, with those bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thanks for that. Uh, so let's now uh, move on to the next uh, panelist and uh, the European Court of Auditors, because uh, only recently in December you've published a, uh, an audit report on public health policies and public health work by the Commission and, uh, and Member States. So I would like to introduce to you uh, Joanna Cocot, and she's an auditor uh, at the European Court of Auditors. Uh, the floor is yours and uh, you can take the microphone. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Joanna Cockott, and I'm very grateful for being invited to your event uh, today to talk about the role of audit institutions uh, at national level, but also at the European level. I work as an auditor in the European Court of Auditors. And yes, indeed, uh, recently we've published a number of uh, reports in public health. Uh, one document I would like to talk to you about is um, an audit compendium in public health. It's a document, a report uh, that synthesizes um, 23 um, audit reports published by national supreme audit institutions. Uh, it also mentions our own reports uh, in, uh, on cross-border healthcare access. And we, over the last two years, we produced uh, special reports on air quality in the European Union, on antimicrobial resistance very recently as, as a serious threat to health, and also in 2016, we had an audit on, uh, on the EU framework for dealing with serious cross-border threats to health. Um, the compendium, uh, as I mentioned, synthesizes the work of national audit institutions. We have uh, 23 national audit institutions contributed. This document has uh, only recently been published. That was December 2019. So it is publicly available, but is being translated to all EU languages at the moment and will be then officially um, disseminated to all, all our stakeholders. And um, this compendium has been grouped, um, the, the audit 
have been grouped in five thematic areas in public health. Um, first one is prevention and protection. Then the second one was access to healthcare, including cross-border um, access to healthcare, the quality of healthcare systems. And then the fourth one was about new technologies and e-health, so digitalization in health. And then uh, finally, the fifth uh, uh, thematic area was on fiscal sustainability and um, of public health services. So what stands out as a main message from our, from our work and the work of national audit, uh, supreme, supreme audit institutions, is that the situation in the EU varies uh, significantly, among member states very significantly, in these thematic areas. So for example, if we take digitalization in health, the situation varies among member states. If we, if we take access to healthcare, uh, timely access to healthcare, for example, or access to cross-border healthcare, it also varies in the member states. And for example, this fact that digitalization in healthcare uh, varied so significantly among, among member states was also the reason, like a, a, let's say a risk that we identified and selected this topic at EU level to be audited in our recent a performance audit report on cross-border healthcare access. So we, we said digitalization facilitates access to healthcare, especially in cross-border dimension. And we, uh, we audited, we looked at performance of uh, EU initiatives um, in digitalization. And we focused on cross-border exchanges of healthcare data, electronic prescriptions and electronic patient summaries. And we also looked at uh, recent important developments uh, in the field of rare diseases. And here we can merge the field of rare diseases together with the, with the thematic area of digitalization, because we looked at uh, a very important uh, innovation, uh, the European, um, European um, uh, sorry, networks, European reference networks, the European reference networks. These are networks of that, um, of centers of expertise for groups of rare diseases. There are 24 such networks in the European Union, established at the European Union today. Um, and it is a digital initiative or in innovation in the sense, because these networks, they operate uh, via an online platform in which uh, cases of patients uh, with rare or complex diseases can be consulted by, by experts from different centers of expertise in the European Union countries. So we praise these initiatives. Of course, we issue, we also spot some weaknesses in the management of this, uh, uh, these initiatives and we issue recommendations. Uh, coming back to the compendium, uh, I mentioned the five thematic areas. We also can, uh, you, in this document, in this compendium, you will see, of course, uh, country by country topics and weaknesses identified, but we try to group them per thematic area. So for prevention and protection, what was noted by this audit was that many campaigns and interventions were not sufficiently tailored to disadvantage population groups. As regards access to health services, uh, many audits note very long waiting lists for some treatment. Uh, then as regards new technologies and e-health, 
So there were three uh, national uh, audit reports in Estonia, Bulgaria, and Latvia, and then plus our own on cross-border exchanges of, of healthcare data. Uh, what was noted is, especially in the member states, these three member states, that although e-health was very high on uh, health agendas in these countries, there were significant delays in implementation of the of e-health the e projects. And then as regards fiscal sustainability, we identified weaknesses as regards procurements or internal controls. I would like to encourage you to um, sign up to our website and by choosing a domain uh, public health or, or environmental health, you will be uh, updated on our products um, and our reports uh, in this field. So this is what I would like to, I'm happy uh, to answer all your questions and hear your reflections about our work. Thanks a lot, uh, Joanna. And I will open the floor for questions and comments later after all the panelists have uh, spoken. Um, so I would like to thank you for that. Um, I uh, actually had a look at the, the companion report. I'm quite uh, impressed uh, because and what I liked of it that it really looked at uh, measures taken, policies implemented in member states on public health. Um, and then you give your, your analysis of that. And I was wondering, how is that going to be taken further? by the Commission or by, by member states. I mean, also from your the previous audits you mentioned on air quality and AMR, what are the lessons learned of the, you know, the uptake uh, of it? And, and what can we expect from this public health audit? Well, uh, when we draft our special report, that uh, report on results of our audit work uh, in a given domain, we list our observations, but we also issue recommendations. And for example, when it comes to our audit on, recent audit on cross-border healthcare access, all recommendations issued by the European Court of Auditors were accepted by the European Commission, and they are being currently implemented. So, so this is what's happening after our audit uh, reports. When it comes to the compendium, I think what stands out from this report is how important uh, public health is uh, for audit institutions, for ensuring um, uh, better management of, of healthcare systems in, at the country's level, but also at the EU level. That's more us. And uh, I think from this compendium uh, might work as a peer-to-peer -peer, um, exercise because we can see what were the main focus areas, what were the audit approaches, was it more financial audits, more compliance audits, or more performance audits. Definitely when we come and, and, uh, and audit uh, EU initiatives, we, we want to look at efficiency of instruments chosen and used to implement EU policies. Yes, thank you. All right, let's now move on to our final uh, panelist, uh, Kasia Chabanowska. She's Associate Professor at the International Health Department of the University of Maastricht. Uh, Kasia, we've heard many uh, recommendations and uh, what it means for health systems, but now what does it mean for the health work workforce, but in particular the public health workforce? I mean, uh, is there sufficient leadership? Uh, how, what about the capacities uh, in order to you know, to tackle of these challenges. 
Gotcha. Thank you, Caroline. I'm really glad that I can speak to this audience and I hope that uh, my conclusions or my comments will resonate with things that have been mentioned by the panelists. And one of the reoccurring themes that we all could have noticed was a gap which was often accentuated, yes, the, that we are still dealing with a divide and that we need transformation. And I would like to quote Professor Michael Marmot, who said that this is our moral imperative to act on social determinants of health, which actually contribute to this divide. But not only, I still would like to quote one more person, Richard Horton, who said that public health leaders nowadays, those who sit in parliaments, are actually divorced from public health benefit. And it is the time now to act, to have courage and act. So the problems, the, the areas that uh, have been highlighted by the reports actually really deal with public health issues and public health as the science and art of promoting health and preventing ill health through organized efforts of society, yes, would never happen if it is not for workforce for people who stand behind it. And who are those public health workforce? So we can talk of those who deliver directly public health services, yes, in their uh, work and the core public health workforce, and those that have some of the activities in their daily work, yes, devoted to the delivery of essential public health services. And this is wider public health workforce and who these people are and what kind of capacities they need. If you read the literature, these are the people uh, who, apart from public health knowledge and skills, they need to have political savvy and they need to have leadership qualities. There is a very interesting publication uh, on the talents of public health leadership or what kind of um, skills they need to have. And this is systems thinking, policy analysis, entrepreneurial orientation, and of course, transformational ethics and leadership. So this is what you can find. But on the other hand, when you want to find out how much money is spent on the development and support of public health workforce, you will not find any indicators. So the closest would be this 3% that is spent on prevention <laughs> that can also explain whether they are supported. But they are not supported. There are a lot of studies that talk about health workforce development and planning. But specifically about public health workforce development and planning, we can't, we can't find anything. And we don't know how many of those we train, what is the enumeration, are there databases where we can really know who they are and how they can be used. So what about the leadership? Yes, now what is public health leadership? So as you can see from the discussions, this is we need a radically different type of leadership that is involving many actors and many sectors, that is horizontal, that is collective and that is democratic. 
So we are not looking at individual figures unless these figures are able to initiate collective actions and bring different stakeholders who contribute to benefit, public health benefits of the populations. And actually, we can say that a public health leader is someone uh, who actually is un unknown. But when his or her goal is achieved, then the people can say, we have done it. So the leadership is to bringing people together with the individual end user in focus translating the knowledge into the language of those end users with the patient or individual in the center. And in order to achieve this type of leadership, we also need to rethink science, bring science closer to the society. And as Joseph said, communicate, communicate. Yes, but these are different communication means. Yes, how to talk uh, to younger generation, the so-called uh, Gene Z, who are digital natives. Do we use the same operational system as they use? Sometimes we fail because we still are in old windows talking to those people. Right, so this is the new type of leadership and I think it works very well if you look at different uh, achievements of public health. Uh, convention on tobacco or some other things and even the collective work that you have presented today. And now going to leaders, public health leaders. That was leadership and now individuals. Yes, what do they do and what do they need? I would like to share with you one of the works that we have been doing together with the Coalition of Partners. We have developed a special competency framework for public health workforce. The competency framework that shows we can't work in silos but, uh, and not in disciplines because we have to work across disciplines to deal with this cloud of skepticism that does not allow for vaccinations, for instance, or the separation that we experience, also a divide from inner, so inner meaning of people with the results that now are produced that nobody wants, like environmental waste, for instance. Yes, so how do we deal with that? Bringing uh, the competences in the, inter, in the interdisciplinary, interprofessional way. So the framework that I mentioned has something like science and practice, meaning these are public health areas like methods, epidemiology, statistics, and also public health law, policy and ethics, and one health and security. Then we have communication and collaboration, where we have public health leadership, culture, advocacy, the, the areas that are extremely important and system thinking. And then we have something like performance and delivery, which is management, governance, reflective ethical practice. So this framework is highly recommendable to help public health professionals work together. And then who they are, yes, who these people are. So these are the people who are networkers, connectors. There are specific talents that they show. Those uh, who uh, can 
shape and organize the reality, who know and can interpret. And these are those who, who can strategize and deliver public health interventions and who can initiate broad interdisciplinary and intersectoral networks and finally those who deliver the interventions for public health benefit. But we need to support them. We need to know how many, who they are, how they can work together to bring public health benefit. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thanks, Cassia. Um, I wanted to, yeah, why not? One of the recommendations highlighted also by Martin and Josem Guillaume is this uh, skill mix and task shifting. And what does this mean for the public health workforce? And also if you think of uh, the other workforce that contribute to health, like teachers or police or, uh, you know, they have a role to play too. So what is your perspective on this? Thank you very much for this question. I think it's very relevant. And uh, recently we have been working with Stefan van der Broeke on a chapter uh, for European Observatory on skill mixing uh, in health promotion and we have done a systematic review uh, on this topic and it turns out that really pharmacists or school nurses can do a lot of different tasks and uh, change and which is very cost effective and cost efficient but I was thinking a little bit further into the public health professionals and how they can uh, mix skills. One of the areas uh, that is quite, is very important when we look at vaccinations, when we look at the social determinants of health and digitalization is public health law. And actually, when we think about public health professionals or people who work in the field, we talk to the lawyers. And the knowledge of public health law among public health professionals leaves a lot to be desired. But this is one of the areas that we also need to study. And there are five public health law services, yes, that is a framework, which actually should be taught early in the curricula for public health professionals, which deal, for instance, with the surveillance of public health policies. And when we talk about vaccination, yes, when we talk about road safety, when we talk about digitalization, obesogenic foods, then public health professionals can do that instead of public health lawyers, instead of lawyers, that is very expensive. Then we can also do the advocacy, yes, and the research mm -hmm. on uh, these policies. So I think that when you look at this competency framework, I mentioned that public health law is one of the areas. So going back to you, education, Yes, and investing in continuous professional development of public health professionals that currently doesn't exist mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would be the way to go. Yes. Thank you, very so important point. I tried point. to move it in a different direction from nurses and pharmacists doing health promotion, but 
also some other lawyers. Yes, very important. Thanks uh, to you. Um, now I would like to ask uh, Martin to reflect a little bit on the, on all of the comments and the contributions by the by the panelists. And uh, I was uh, also wondering. I have a specific question for you: Is um, to what extent you feel that in this new period, like that the semester as primarily an economic and fiscal tool, is now going to become a more important tool to take further health policy also with member states. As we know that van der Leyen has very much societal well-being is very much also important to her in addition to prosperity and economic well-being. And the semester is supposed to also embrace the SDGs. You know, so there are opportunities. So I would like to hear your reflection on that too and on what the other panelists have mentioned. Yes, thank you. Um, I think actually this is the heart of the question. First of all, I think uh, uh, the, this semester has proven to be an invaluable tool. Um, I know initially in the first years, um, especially when we were in the, let's say, depth of the, of the financial crisis in the most critical phase where the emphasis had to be on, on, on survival and basically keeping uh, countries afloat. But we've learned a lot through these, to these past years. And I think if you look at what the semester is producing now, there's actually um, a much more uh, also uh, strategic vision, uh, also trying to understand the drivers of the problems, not just to, to, to uh, react to, to issues like uh, uh, unsustainable expenditure, but also to examine, for example, the roots of that expenditure. If you look at, I don't know, pharmaceutical spending, or if you look at issues of workforce. And, and you will see, um, I think, quite clearly that even um, in, in, in the past years, there's been increasing emphasis on things like uh, prevention, like health promotion, like primary care, integration of care. So this has been a very important, but why? Uh, because um, it links a bit to what we were discussing earlier. It would be the biggest mistake to think that um, uh, improving public health is just the responsibility of health ministers or health ministries. Um, in the past, this was sometimes the perception because um, you know, in, in, in the good old days, in, in inverted commas, health budgets were very well protected, they were ring-fenced, and nobody was really thinking about what was under the hood of the engine and basically looking at the mechanism. So the engine was there, it was always working, it was always well supplied with fuel, and we never bothered about it. Um, and now we, we, are, we have been taking the trouble to actually look at this engine and see uh, whether actually parts of it need to be updated. And there are lots of upgrading which needs to happen. So it's been a good exercise because you need, first of all, the, the Minister of Health to do his or her job properly needs to have the full support of the rest of government. Um, you cannot have you know, the finance minister or the economics minister or social affairs ministers you know, um, standing uh, apart from this. That's the first lesson. Secondly, from the commission's perspective, um, yes, we have a Directorate General for Health, and, 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 and as, as, as you all know, there's a very uh, ambitious agenda for, placed in front of the Commissioner for Health, perhaps the most ambitious uh, agenda any health commissioner has ever uh, been tasked with. But health uh, needs to be even broader than that. There is a strong emphasis now on the, on the SDGs. This is really important because, again, here there's been a big shift. You know, and in the past, we always tended to kind of think that uh, the sustainable development was something happening elsewhere in the world. And now we realize, for example, the issues of the inequalities between and within member states. Um, this uh, requires a lot also of work to achieve those SDGs also within Europe. 
we are well placed. I think if you look at, at many of the indicators for health, I mean, Europe probably is one of the best placed regions to achieve the, the goals by, 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 by uh, 2030, but we're not there yet. And in some areas, I think we have to be very careful. The biggest challenge is the, are the inequalities. The inequalities have a strong also political um, you know, price tag. Um, if, if we do not address those, these are the centrifugal forces that are tearing Europe apart. Uh, I mentioned, you know, there are socioeconomic differences, there are vulnerable groups, even differences between people who live in urban areas and people who live in rural areas. Um, the access as, as uh, the access to healthcare, living in a rural area, even in, a, in some countries that are otherwise would be classified as rich, you know, high GDP and so on, you will see even within those countries, makes a big difference if you live in the capital city or one of the main cities or if you live in a rural area. Um, and this is something which, if left untackled, will create enormous political implications. Um, so, so uh, obviously, this has to be a priority for the Commission. It will be a priority for the Commission. We also need to find better ways of using our funding instruments. We have very powerful instruments we can deploy in Europe. Um, various types of, of funds. I mean, we have already some very good examples. Uh, like, for example, we have been using the structural reform support uh, to, to, to work with countries, for example, who don't yet have uh, a good cancer screening system to actually help them uh, because in putting uh, such a system in place, they not only improve public health, but they also save money in the long term. So this is also a, a very important example, and we will be looking across the board to all the programs that we have uh, to make the to find the best possible match between issue and instrument mm -hmm. this is i think a key responsibility for the commission um, if we can use all the tools in the toolbox and not just one or two uh, and i think the final challenge i would mention is that we need to move away from this thinking that um, you know we, we we say it's either the member states responsibility or it's Europe's responsibility. It's our collective responsibility. Subsidiarity does not mean we pass the buck to each other. It means we have different roles, but we work together on the same issues. And this is why uh, this analysis of the state of health is so important. Of course, the, the, the responsibility for delivering health systems is with the member states, but the member states should feel supported, particularly those that are in the weakest position. They should be able to rely on the European Commission and other European institutions and indeed on support from other member states in terms of transferring of best practices and so on. There's a lot of, of, of work which can be done there. Uh, and so I hope and I, I am confident that the next uh, five years, particularly because of the themes chosen as, as priorities in the area of health, will help, uh, will help us uh, achieve that, that, that the transformation. Thank you, Martin. So I would now like to open up uh, the floor to, to you for your questions and comments. And I would like to take a few questions and comments first, first round, and then I'll address it to the panelists. So who would like to start? We have heard many, many things, but we also heard some things not, like migration and health, aging, environment and health, mental health. Yes, please. My name is Michal Boni, <coughs> former member of European Parliament, now related to APCO and Martin Center. Thank you very much for the conference and for those reports. Uh, two small questions. Firstly, uh, uh, the assessment of European uh, reference networks. 
it, it is not clear for me if we have money for the future. Uh, and it is important because the, the, the role, the significance of uh, this network is, uh, is clear and uh, it is changing mind in many countries because we, on the other hand, need to remember that uh, healthcare uh, systems are under the member states' competences. It's not so easy as to create some kind of harmonized solutions. And the question to, 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 uh, to Professor Czabanowska, uh, uh, could you explain much more precisely the new model of leadership, yes? Uh, leadership at the European level and how to join the leadership at the European level with uh, those levels at the national level, because it's crucial from political point of view how to integrate uh, uh, policies uh, uh, and activities uh, uh, at the healthcare area. Yes, thank you. Any further questions or comments? Yes, Zoltz? Since, Caroline, you also mentioned migration, I. I wonder if we have data or statistics on the health situation of, of migrants in the EU. I mean, we hear a lot about the, the, I mean, that some of these people live in very poor conditions, and I wonder if, if also what kind of access they have, I mean, what kind of insurance they have, if, if there's any information that would be very interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you. One more over there. Hi, my name is Michael Strubin, Digital Health Director at Medtech Europe. I'm going to be speaking a little bit later in, in more detail. Um, I was struck by one of the slides um, that grouped um, some of the low spenders on healthcare um, and uh, directly correlated them with um, low healthcare outcomes. Um, and one of the countries that we looked at uh, uh, and that I have a special interest in is, is Estonia because it may actually be spending a lot, uh, very little money on healthcare, but it's one of the superstar achievers in digital health. And so I was wondering, and maybe invite you all to reflect on this, is to what extent does digital health may have a lag in terms of health outcomes? Or is it just something that we put on top, a kind of a cream on a lipstick on a pig, uh, some would say? Um, or do we expect um, digital health um, to have a, a more long-term um, effect on, on healthcare outcomes? Mm -hmm. um, maybe just um, that's it. Thank you. Yes, interesting question. When I studied these graphs, I saw that Estonia was also the country with the biggest increase in healthy life expectancy. Uh, so I was already wondering how, how come, how did that happen? Uh, all right, so uh, a set of questions. Uh, who would like to start? Would you like to take up the, the leadership uh, question first? Thank you very much, Michael, for the question that you have answered. Uh, and uh, what does it mean, leadership, that we know from the European perspective with these horizontal partnerships, citizens' involvement, for a specific local situation? Yes, and how we can translate that? Do I understand right your question? Yes, so what is important to know is the context, where we are, yes, in what situation, and then what is the vision and strategy and the objective? Yes, what do you want to achieve? It has to be very clearly formulated. And then what happens, we 
assemble, we try to bring together a big coalition of stakeholders, yes, from different levels, to convince them to our problem. Yes, you can't work alone in isolation, and everybody must feel that they equally contribute to the problem and that they actually own your problem. The moment when you get this, that someone feels I'm the owner of the problem, they will be with you. And then the specific work will follow with finding out why we need this, what we can do, and then how we can do. And there are specific tools that can go. But I would say this is the way to start. Mm -hmm. Context, specific vision, objective, then bringing together everybody to the table. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Thank you. Does it answer yes. your question? Maybe on the... Yes, on the ERNs, I brought uh, the concept of ERNs uh, to the discussion, so I can uh, answer your question, maybe together with uh, Director Sekel. Uh, indeed, uh, the fact that the European reference networks uh, face significant challenges to ensure they are financial, uh, financially sustainable and able to operate effectively was one of our main observations in the recent uh, performance audit report on cross-border healthcare access. And uh, one of our recommendations was to set, um, to set out ways forward to, to, to address these challenges so that they could operate in an effective way. I don't know if uh, Mr. Seikel would like to... Yes, indeed. Um, this is a very important area where we are following up the recommendations. I would um, highlight there are two main challenges uh, facing the ERNs. Uh, one of them is, of course, uh, the, 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 the financial sustainability. Uh, and there are you know, two, um, uh, you know, issue, two uh, possible solutions to that. First, some member states are already linking the uh, uh, reimbursement or compensation to the centers uh, to their membership, so they get uh, they receive uh, financial support from their member state for being members of an ERN. So this is a, a recognition of the fact that they are able to produce added value, provide added value to the health system. Uh, and secondly, from the European side, we are uh, looking at ways in which we can use, for example, the research program, because I think we all realize that the ERNs can be very valuable infrastructure for research, just to point out two important facts on rare diseases. At the moment, it still takes five years on average for a rare disease to be diagnosed, that's an average, five years. And uh, only we have only treatments for one to two percent of the 6,000 rare diseases uh, present. So uh, there's a lot of ground for research. Of course, to do that, um, you can only have um, attractive uh, environment for research if you have uh, not just a network, but a, a well-functioning network. Uh, if you have access not just to uh, a small part of the rare disease population, but through the networks to the entire rare disease population, including the majority who will never be directly referred to the ERNs, but who should be able to be, for example, enrolled in clinical trials, etc. You know, also because this is something they need. The second challenge we have is the need to fully integrate the ERNs in the national health systems. So the ERNs should not be the tool of last resort. So when we run out of options, we refer the patient to the ERN. Of course, in some cases, that is also useful. But 
it would be really important to ensure that each and every patient in Europe that could or is suffering from a rare disease has a pathway for diagnosis and where available treatment. Now, that pathway, of course, uh, will be defined by the member state, but it should fully integrate the ERNs. So this is really important so that through the ERNs, we can have access to data and to the, to the full population of patients. And this, I think, will greatly accelerate. I am confident that if we do this, we could, for example, our calculations are we could reduce the time for diagnosis from five years to less than one year which would be a dramatic uh, improvement. Mm. But of course, this is only possible if there's a very good, you know, but these are the two challenges, yes, we are working on. Mm, thanks. Uh, Josef and Guillaume, can I uh, <laughs> let you to respond to the questions on migration and on the expenditure and health outcomes um, paradigm? Or <laughs> and uh, maybe also to clarify the situation in Estonia and the yeah. reference to digital. I, I will rather pick the Estonia one, which I, I, I can say some, some things about, but uh, much less on migrants, which by definition is a bit more difficult to, to assess and, 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 to, and to measure in details. Um, for Estonia, the, the thing is that, yeah, interestingly enough, um, Estonia, um, I would say, uh, we, we, can, we, can, we can see the figures of Estonia the, the way we want, in the sense that we can say, well, it's still very high, the, 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 the mortality from treatable causes remain high, but we can also see and compare it, for instance, with the other Baltic states. If you check uh, Latvia and Lithuania, I mean, these three countries come from exactly the same historical background. The population are roughly similar. They don't speak obviously the same languages, but I mean, culturally, they're very tight. And uh, what we see is that we're much better in Estonia than in, uh, in Latvia and Lithuania in terms of, uh, of the overall performance of the health system and the health of the population. Uh, so it means, and this is reflected in the fact that Estonia is one of the best performing countries in terms of the progression of life expectancy over the last 15 years. It's the, I think it's the first one, actually, that has... Uh, gained the, the, the highest number of years uh, in the last 15 years. So we can also see what has been done so far and that the progress, what has been in. So I mean, things don't happen overnight, obviously, and, and, and all these changes take time. And, and, and Estonia still grapples with, with important issues like a uh, lack of uh, you know, workforce capacity overall. Uh, you know, some general issues also with the with the the, the, the low level of investment uh, of investment on health and the very high level of out of pocket expenditure, which leads to catastrophic uh, expenditure and pushing people into poverty. There is also the issue of marginalized population within Estonia. I mean, we're, we're very rarely mentioning the question of the Russian speakers in in, in Estonia who are really uh, you know having troubles in accessing some services and so on. So it's uh, it, there are still a lot of uh, of issues in Estonia, but I, I, I really think that uh, the performance we see, I mean, uh, are, can be related to serious transformation of the health system that have happened over the, of the years, and thanks to the support also of partners like the observatory, like the, like WHO, who helped them and, and supported the authorities in the, in the reforms they are, that have been undertaken uh, in, in last years, and, 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 and that's for sure. It's, I, I would say I would put it rather in a, in a better performing country uh, group rather than, than anything else, especially considering uh, the starting point uh, for, for Estonia. And I hand over maybe to Joseph to compliment and talk about migrants. <laughs> Just to compliment on Estonia, I mean, should be cautious, and I like you asked this question about uh, trying to make these basic correlations. I was trying to be quite uh, pragmatic and quite critical myself. Uh, Obviously, it's not about more money, more performance. <laughs> there is some element of more money, more performance. But as if you recall the, the figure, among those highest spenders, there were huge differences 
the same performance was achieved with different levels of spending. What does that mean? We need to talk about that, but there are clearly space for more efficiencies. And the point about the lowest performance, it wasn't to say, because there are differences, substantial differences among those. The point there was to say, at certain level of expenditures, forget it, it's just too little. I mean, of course, you can do efficiencies everywhere, but there are levels, like in Bulgaria and Romania, with, practic with very little human resources and so on. Still a lot you can do, but it's very dire, and we need to support and lobby for more resources, full stop. But even within those, there are differences. Uh, to add Estonia, Estonia is not digital health, I'm sorry. Estonia is public health. It's public health, and they got their act together, as you say, with the support of WHO and others in the reform of the systems. But Estonia has an advantage, it's full of Estonians. So, uh, Estonians, like Finnish, they have a particular kind of character at the time of adopting digital health or doing reforms or discipline. And this is one of the issues that I would like to highlight today and building on what Martin Seikel said earlier, is not the digital health, it's the ability to adopt, accept, understand and implement digital health. Effectively, the Finns and the Estonians were ahead of the game together with the Swedes basically are not worried about trust, that they're not worried about the government, they just basically trust the government. They don't miss, you know, it's not like uh, Germany or the UK, or even this country where there are huge issues with privacy, and per per perhaps the right ones. I don't want to get into that, we'll go into that in the next session, I'm sure you'll, you'll raise those issues. But effectively, Estonia has progressed so much on digital health because it's part of the fundamental culture, first, to use digital health, and secondly, the enormous trace, trust, on the, on, the, on, on the state, on the government, on having this data available. But remind you, it's health systems and particularly public health, it's HIV, AIDS and cardiovascular diseases. Second, may I say something about ERNs, even if it wasn't my question. I'm a real converted ERN person, um, Martin, as you know, and, and as you are, I know. This is the way forward. This is the roaming charges. The roaming charges have been one of the best things for Europe. ERN is the same thing. The ability to uh, be seen in other countries, not literally but virtually, is fundamental in terms of communication. Secondly, the issue of sustainability, I totally agree, obviously, with all the comments of Martin, but it's a national level. In terms of the, the commission with you, Martin, as you know, we're trying to do a study about the use of resources and, and the costings of these ERNs. When you talk to these ERNs, they get so many intangibles. Uh, specialists working together, doing research together, developing guidelines together, exchanging training programs together. Some of our countries in Europe are very small and have huge benefits in terms of trying to work at rare diseases. The actual resources used for teleconferences and so on, telemedicine, are very low. And if I may say so, that, that, I don't know if I can say that, but talking, we had a, telephone, a video conference, telephone conference with all the ERNs Monday with your colleagues at the leadership, um, Martin, and the issue is not money as such. They are very rich, these hospitals, have lots of benefits. In the West, in the East, it's a different thing. They're, they're with fair, fair, but in the West, they really see the enormous benefits. And i like to go further. Subsidiarity or not, I don't think it has to do with subsidiarity, the potential of networks in Europe is huge because now everything is a rare disease. Everything is precision medicine. Everything is personalized medicine. We need to get this. This is one of the big advantages of Europe. We need to get these people training together, exchanging practices. Yes, Caroline, I stop here. But there's so much we need to look at the RNs as a model of working on networks across, across, across countries. 
It's a real winner. Yes, very good. Working Sorry, better together. Yes. Now, I just wanted to uh, give uh, the audience one last opportunity to ask questions so or to make a comment before we break up for, for lunch. So I see two. First, yes, please. If you can also state your name. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm uh, Han Jianli from Mission of China to the European Union. And thank you very much to the panelists uh, for your very good presentations and to uh, Deputy Director General Seychelles especially. And uh, I have really taken a very important uh, message from you, including both the, um, the health is not just the mandate of the health ministry and um, also other important uh, information. Uh, also, as uh, you rightly pointed out in your opening speech, uh, non-communicable disease is actually not the only burden that we face um, referring to the coronavirus in China. And um, uh, this uh, virus uh, uh, has caused uh, uh, so far, uh, over 400 uh, cases in China in, uh, and also uh, some cases in a few other countries. Uh, so far, not yet in European Union, I think, but uh, we are still uh, uh, active, very uh, actively observing this. And um, China has taken very uh, uh, strict uh, precaution measures and also uh, reactivated the joint mechanism of prevention and control as uh, uh, Mr. Seychelles said this uh, health is not the, just the, the health ministry's mandate as the, that mechanism uh, is composed uh, of 32 uh, agencies in China. And uh, so all the country is, is now working really hard on this. And also uh, China has been very transparent in uh, and cooperating with the world and the other countries. And uh, we uh, notify, uh, for example, the World Health Organization and the European Union as well, and some other countries every day on the case reporting, and also uh, communicate with this, uh, and, uh, including sharing the uh, virus uh, sequence uh, with the World Health Organization, and uh, so that other countries also uh, uh, can now uh, diagnose uh, in, um, very quickly and the disease. And so we still look forward to work very closely with uh, uh, the world, uh, of course, including the European Union. And also, actually, just uh, six or seven hours ago, uh, China uh, had a press conference um, talking about this and uh, the control of this uh, disease. And, um, and the, all the <laughs> transcript is online. Uh, but in Chinese, anybody is, if uh, anybody is interested, welcome to come to me during the break. And I would like to, uh, um, uh, to give my translation service for any information they'd like to know from that press conference. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for updating us on the, the situation. It's a bit more reassuring. <laughs> thank you. Um, yes, please. Uh, thank you. I'm Stefania Boccia from Catholic University in Rome. I'm a professor of public health. It's more a comment than a question uh, because uh, I was listening to the excellent presentation, especially those about avoidable and preventable mortality. But concerning avoidable and preventable disability, we know from the companion report that there is a huge difference across European member states uh, in terms of length of life lived with certain disability before death. And we know that Sweden is the best performer around eight years, like Italy now, more than 20 years lived with some disability, and we still know that a lot of these years can be reduced with a very good preventive efforts, and especially those tackling behaviors, as Guillaume said. 
So I also think that sometimes public health professionals and policymakers should be more brave because we know that in Sweden, we have only 10% of the population that smoke. And if I'm not wrong, in 2025, maybe there will be a completely ban of smoking in Sweden. So again, my question is, what is your view about this point? Because it's, it's okay, I'm completely in agree with you that the Ministry of Public Health cannot work alone. They should work with the Ministry of Economics, Agriculture, Infrastructure, whatever. But sometimes we have answers to some difficult questions and we should maybe be more brave to put them in place, but it's, it's just considerations. So I want to see your view on that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's an important comment. Okay, last opportunity. One, two, yes, over there. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Marcin Radzinka and I work for Mental Health Europe and I'm also a vice chair of a committee in European Health Parliament. And my question is about um, the silos that we are like constantly talking about in the in the EU bubble, in the you know health EU bubble, and that we shouldn't work in silos, that we should you know create more partnerships and and join forces. But my question is about the future um, of of working together for health and the role of the private sector in health, and actually how we should. What are the risks of involvement of the private sector in healthcare and in health and in public health, and how we can safeguard um, the public interest when it comes to this cooperation that we should you know that we leave the silos, we work together, but actually everyone has its own role and how we safeguard that actually the benefits for the public are um, on the top and are uh, realized. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Very important question on the role of the private sector and the commercial determinants of health. So I would like to give all of you uh, one more opportunity to make your final statement as well as responding to the, the comments and questions that were just put forward. Um, Martin, would you like to start? If I make two quick points, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, uh, the Chinese colleague. Uh, also, um, we are very grateful for the very good uh, communication on this uh, crisis. But I'd like to make the point about communicable disease in general, because we've seen a very lot of impressive statistics. If there's one thing that could disrupt all this is communicable disease. And as we have seen, things can come out very suddenly in a very unpredictable way. But there are threats, like uh, I mentioned vaccination earlier, skepticism, AMR, it's, over, it's very underestimated. There have been recent studies which clearly indicate more people will die from antimicrobial resistance than from climate change. This is the reality. You know, and, and I think we are simply not at the same level. I hear very few political leaders speaking about AMR. It's still doctors, scientists, etc., speaking about the problem. Um, so we need really to take this to the political level. Um, so this is really important uh, because uh, this, this really can have a big impact. And th there are some big problems we have never gone away, tuberculosis, HIV AIDS, these kind of diseases, even uh, diseases like seasonal flu, um, you know, still kills a lot of people. Um, uh, also, I, I think it's really important um, to, to really find ways to um, embed these considerations also in other policies. Very often, the most important uh, gains in public health will not come from health policy. Things like housing, environment, uh, things like uh, social welfare sometimes can deliver improvements in public health. So um, the key question also when we talk about health expenditure is also to see that we can also use other areas of expenditure in the right way. Uh, and sometimes I know we have a tendency, because we are public health people, we think <clears throat> that the benefits can only come 
from expenditure and health. But very often, the biggest health benefits can come from looking at the contribution of other sectors. I'd like to emphasize this as a kind of take-home message as well. Thanks. Thank you. Then perhaps start with, uh, with Joseph, and then we go on to... Well, actually, I felt that the three last contributions were a beautiful way to wrap us up today. The multilateralism of China, I love that, thank you. I think the point in Sweden is, is, is fundamental and how a lot of our day-to-day -day work, uh, our Monday morning work as well, is how do we empower these policymakers. And there are many issues there to put on the table. One that I'm particularly fascinated now, and in the context of the SDGs, I'm sure Caroline and I very much agree on that, is what we call the co-benefits. The Observatory has started some work on that, which is not what the others can do for you, but what can you can do for the others. This is how health is fundamental on gender equity, how health is fundamental to improve education, how health can be very good for the environmental agenda. So it's, it's co-benefits. It's not saying, you know, if you boil the environment, it's good for health. No, no, no. How health by diet, et cetera, et cetera, and so on, how can have an impact on the environment. I think if we manage to articulate these kinds of argumentations for our ministers of health, of public health, so they have a more weight in government, if we support them when they have real day-to-day -day needs, there's a lot of the transformation, the leadership, the knowledge brokering, I think we have a real chance. And I think we need to change a bit our genes, the way we operate in this room, all of us, on how we see them, particularly those in university. We need to see ourselves as supporting them with these nuggets of information, evidence, and support, and so on. So I think that's that's I think will be an important conclusion today. And I think the public-private mix is the second one. Actually, if I may say, one of the themes this year, maybe the theme this year, I don't know if I can say that, but I always say what I shouldn't say, in, in Gastein, maybe dancing with the elephants in the room. That's my push uh, in the theme. And I hope Martin will be there. Uh, and it's the commercial determinants. It's the elephants in the room. And, and the elephants in the room, we need to dance with them. Not very closely, with some distance sometimes. Uh, and have a, a judicious mix of, of, of carrots and sticks. So some are prepared to survive. I remember a long time ago in UFA, I was running a, a plenary, and I had all the major uh, sort of uh, private sort of determinants of health there. We had uh, some of the multinationals, let's leave it like that. Even Pepsi-Cola was there, how politically incorrect. So they were there, and they were saying, uh, I thought it was very important actually to mix them with the public health profession, although I was very much criticized. Uh, they were saying, listen, we are prepared to self-regulate, but only if the Commission and WHO and others, and particularly I really like to support what the Commission is trying to do, because WHO doesn't have that regulation capacity, the stick is there, threatening us. Then we'll do that. But the self-regulation alone will not go very far. So yes, yes, you have, you look at, at a stop, but the initial coverage, even WHO, even the whole movement in low-income countries, and middle-income countries, we won't get universal health coverage unless we play with the private sector and we bring them on board. We have to dance with them, but with caution. Thank you. Joe. Yeah. Um, just a very quick comment. I think that, yeah, indeed, we need to have better performing 
public health professional better trained and so on. But I really believe, I, I will use a quotation from Max Weber, you know, the founding father of sociology. One day he was asked, what, what is a sociologist? And, and he basically answered, a sociologist is someone who makes a living out of sociology. So I think that we all have a responsibility and we can all be public health professionals also as long as we make a contribution. And I consider that someone like an architect that designs a building where he swaps the parking slots of people, you know, so that they have to walk a bit more before they come to office, that the elevator starts at the third floor and so on. All these persons are, for me, the real public health also professionals because they're they're making a, a real uh, contribution to, to, to the health of the population and so on. So I think that it's important to have people to lead that, but also to, to be able to understand that, you know, the health in all policy is really uh, the answer. Then what to do, how to be, how to, how to manage to, uh, the question from our colleague from Sweden. Um, also, I think that we have to understand, and there is some sort of a revolution that we have to make in our mind, uh, mindsets, is I think it's the sense that, um, you know, as long as we will consider the health systems, I mean, and that the leaders of health systems uh, will only focus on the fact that, uh, you know, uh, we have to balance, uh, you know, incomes and expenses, we will have this issue of, of saying that what's worth uh, investing on and so on. I think that, uh, if we consider that um, public health and prevention also is 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 a, is a, is a necessary element, uh, we we can spend on it only if we consider that the role of a health system is not to be balanced, but is to provide health to the population. You see, so that's also uh, um, some sort of uh, to be more bold in our approaches in this and be able to uh, to handle that that switch in our mindset that you know if we consider that delivering health and improving the health of the population is not cost free then we, we will be able also to invest more in, in these interventions that not necessarily, you know, if we go beyond cost effectiveness or cost saving in the reasoning on that. So we have to be more bold in our approaches on this. Uh, and, um, and the last, very, very last uh, point is that the, the relation on public, private and so on, things have to be also made more, uh, how to say, have to be improved also in the way, in the influence of one over the other. And I will just use a very simple example of what happened uh, in the country where I'm living, in France, because there has been a huge attempt by the public health community to, you know, to have uh, the, the authorities taking up the dry January uh, concept, meaning that we have just to take one month with alcohol-free, uh, you know, uh, behavior and just to check on our consumption, our relationship to alcohol consumption and so on. And the authorities, the Ministry of Health was keen in uh, supporting this officially and uh, the, the executive authorities say no, as a matter of fact, we will not considering the size of the, the this market sector in France and so on. So I'm just saying that as long as we will not be able also to make helps prevail on other interests, I mean, there will be a lot to be done still. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Joan? Maybe just two sentences to wrap up. I would like to underline the, the importance of audit institutions in auditing fields that matter to EU citizens and public health definitely is. And just draw your attention to the fact that sometimes we can have audits um, that would be categorized as environmental audits, like our recent audit on air quality, but in the, indeed these are um, also audits in public health where air pollution is a pressing uh, threat to health and I would like to draw your attention to this report as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to join Joseph saying that these three last uh, comments were really very crucial because uh, the problems that our Chinese colleague presented really can disrupt and we can feel that we are prepared, but then it turns out that we are never prepared and things happen for the first time. And then that we have to have courage to work across sectors and include 
those that can participate. And concerning the private sector, we have a lot of positive examples. And uh, the Convention on Tobacco, and here there is a great success. And uh, colleagues were working with the industries, which are very strong. But just to uh, have my final comment. I would say that the work that has been done by, by the colleagues, by the European Commission Observatory and OECD is a fantastic tool for public health decision-making, the evidence-based decision-making. And it can also initiate a big call to support the development of public health workforce and planning. Thanks, uh, Kasia, for uh, these uh, comments, and thanks to all panelists for these comments. I think we've had a very rich session. We have covered a lot of topics, uh, which was very well set out by the State of Health in the EU overview uh, presentations. Um, we will have uh, new opportunities that are coming up, which we didn't manage to discuss here. We briefly touch upon the semester, but there is also the, the Green Deal that has been presented with lots of uh, links to environment, uh, environmental health, there is the social uh, Europe uh, roadmap presented, there's an action plan on the European pillar of social rights, uh, there will be a digital uh, strategy uh, coming up, uh, so loads of opportunities for us to link up with and to uh, ensure the health and well-being of uh, all of uh, European citizens, so we have work to do. Uh, that's, I think, <laughs> what I want to say here. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Josep, Guillaume, Martin, uh, Joanna and Cassia for your fantastic uh, contribution and for the Bruegel Institute for hosting us here. And uh, there is uh, a coffee break time now and uh, back at 11.30. What is it? 11.30, yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.